The Healthy Golf Podcast, Episode 37, with Ryan Caserta. Welcome to the Healthy Golf Podcast, a podcast designed to help you transform your golf game and your life. Join your host, Dr. Joe O, as he chats with experts on all things golf performance to keep you feeling great and playing your best on and off the course. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Golf Podcast. And guys and gals, I'm so excited to bring on Dr. Ryan Caserta. Let me get this straight before I introduce him. But Dr. Ryan is a sports psychologist, an expert in perceptual training and eye tracking expert, and is the cognitive enhancement lead at SOCOM, which is the United States Special Operations Command. He's worked with amateur and professional golfers. And with his professional golfers, he's worked with them on every major tour around the world and has helped them win major championships, have multiple wins in a season, and has helped them finish number one on the money list. Um, so, Dr. Ryan, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, so I got the opportunity to listen to Ryan give a presentation to the Golf Fitness Mastermind that I'm in. And um, I was just blown away by all the stuff that he presented. And I figured more people need to hear this. And uh, so I wanted to bring him on the show. And um, so basically, we're going to get right into it, Ryan. And one of the things that he went over on the presentation was talking about the five areas of expertise. And basically, I know that every golfer, for the most part, wants to be better at what they do. And it takes a while to become an expert in something, but go a little bit deeper into what those five areas are. And then we can, we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me, I was always an athlete first, right? You know, I, I never had dreams of getting a PhD in my lifetime. You know, I had dreams of being a pro athlete, right? So um, I became very passionate about how we develop expertise and uh, how we maintain it when it matters the most. And so in starting to uh, get into studying expertise, um, I learned that there are uh, five specific areas that you have to train. And if you're lacking in any of these five areas, it can keep you from getting to higher levels of performance. So uh, the first area that's, you know, uh, pretty obvious are physical skills, right? And this is right up your alley. So, (laughs) you know, everything from strength, power, stability, um, speed, agility, mobility, all of those physical skills are really important. And depending on the sport you're playing, they can vary, right? Uh, think about a sport like football, even, even within the sport of football, different positions would they'll require a different mix of those physical skills to really be good at a specific position. Now, if we're talking specifically about golf, of course, uh, everybody's trying to hit the ball farther now. <laughs> That's a big deal. So, of course, things like the strength and the power come to mind. Um, I could also think of a, a bunch of others, but I'm actually intrigued since this is your area of expertise, you know, kind of what your thought, thoughts are as the real key areas when it comes to developing the physical skills for golf specifically. Yeah. Um, first of all, if we're talking mostly talking about to and about amateurs because most of us are not playing and getting paid for for what we do so i would say first of all the lowest hanging fruit is mobility Mm -hmm. um mobility primarily in four areas in my my experience the hips mid back shoulder and neck are are key um obviously there's other places to really think about but those are the four big ones that you really rotate around and if you're lacking rotation that's going to be a problem as we all know in the golf swing after that, just getting stronger, I think is going to be key. Um, most golfers, you know, there's always been this adage from old days that getting strong makes you tight and inflexible and all these things, which is not true. In fact, it can actually improve your flexibility and mobility if you do it correctly. And then, um, lastly, on top of that, I think with the strength is that a lot of people, uh, underdose themselves, meaning they, they don't load enough. Um, and they're thinking that they're training okay and well, but they're not actually really training truly strength wise to lift heavy enough. I mean, you're supposed to lift, you know, anywhere from 80% or up to, of your one, one rep max basically. And a lot of times people don't even know what their one rep max is and that's okay. And I don't necessarily say go out and do one rep max, one rep max testing. You can do like a five rep max test and then figure out from calculations what your one rep max is. And then you can calculate from there what 80% of that is. Um, But I feel like a lot of people just underload themselves. And that's where a lot of people can benefit from just doing that. 
And then you can always just move those weights faster. And then there's an inverse relationship with that. Basically, when you want to move faster, the weight has to come down and that's okay. And then after that, once you hit all those boxes, then I would say overspeed training is what would be beneficial. Because a lot of people are already fast. They don't think they are because, you know, these guys on tour are hitting, you know, 120 miles per hour club head speed or, or more. Um, but most people are already fast for their age range. And a lot of times they're lacking all that other stuff. And so doing all that other stuff will make them faster. Um, the problem is, is, um, like super speed and all those overspeed stuff is, is really good. And you get a quick fix and reward because it, you know, it, it, uh, tricks almost your nervous system or taps, taps into it a little bit better so you can be faster. So you can see that immediate return. Um, whereas strength training takes months to get stronger and a lot of people don't, don't like that. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's, those are the main things in terms of getting faster. I would recommend for most people. Yeah. So, I mean, the specific areas that you brought up brings me to my next point, and this is an overarching point for all of these five areas to be an expert. You know, one of the key things to becoming an expert is deliberate practice. I mean, this really is the driver um, of, of uh, developing expertise and, you know, being able to get deliberate practice that is right for you. What are the areas and how does that balance need to be for you specifically? I mean, that takes a lot of work. You got to be working maybe with someone that really understands how to do that correctly and how to keep progressing you through the programs um, because it's things like that that make the deliberate practice where you are continuing to grow and get better. Um, and so and just hearing some of the things you talked about, I can think of a, one of my tour players that I had where he ended up having a neck injury and uh, the physio that he was working with that travels on tour with him uh, said, I mean, I can fix your neck, but if you really want to know what this problem is and how it led up to it, like really where the fix needs to be, we might have to dig a little deeper. So long story short, after digging through a lot of things, both physical, uh, but also nutritionally, he started to learn a little bit about how some of his nutrition was impacting his flexibility, uh, things that with a gluten that was kind of causing inflammation, the inflammation was making it tighter and then restricting some of that motion. And when you're on tour and hitting that many balls week after week, you know, it's a lot of reps. And so his neck kind of gave out a little bit and, and that injury, not only did he, you know, rehab, but then he changed other things like his nutrition, which helped him to stay healthier. And now staying injury free on tour is, is definitely helping <laughs> your career. <laughs> yes. Making cuts and, uh, you know, keeping your tour card, it, it, the healthier your body is, uh, that's going to make a big difference long-term. So the second area then leads into the technical skills. So obviously you got to train the physical side, but the technical side is just as important. Uh, depending on the sport, technical skills can range from basic to complex motor patterns. Um, but I would say in golf, uh, there is no sport that has a more technically demanding aspect to it because golf has many areas that you have to become technically proficient in. And you really can't ask a teammate to come in and bail you out, <laughs> right? So uh, if you're not great at uh, fairway bunker shots, it's tough just to avoid all fairway bunkers. You may eventually find yourself in one and you, you can't be deficient in that area of the game. And so being able to train all of those areas uh, and to develop them, um, I would say my, my time over the last 20 years uh, seeing players at all levels, but especially those on all major tours around the world, I would argue that the ones that I'm seeing that are having the most success, I mean, they really are good very proficient in all areas of the game, but they really have one area of the game that they truly excel at. And it's really, that's what's separating them from the rest of, uh, of the players who are maybe on minor tours and, and maybe not getting to the highest level. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting with golf and golf is one of those sports where if you, you know, have a few bad shots, uh, you miss a cut, you don't get any money for that. Um, you could be injured um, after playing one game uh, for baseball or for football. Uh, you you kind of still get paid, even though you're on the the DL or you're not playing. You know, <laughs> injured reserve list. But it's uh, one of those things where with golf, uh, you got to be out there and playing well, and it all falls on you. And uh, you know, you got to be able to hit all those shots. And so it's important again to have the deliberate practice to keep growing uh, those abilities. 
you can't focus only on the things you like or the things you're great at. Uh, you really got to be able to focus in on the areas that maybe need to get better so your overall game can keep improving. So uh, the third area are tactical skills. And uh, tactical skills fall into things like strategy and course management. I would say that this is an area that's kind of uh, under-trained when it comes to the amateur side. Um, I think amateur golfers could save a ton of strokes if they start focusing more in on uh, some better course strategy and how to play certain holes maybe um, tactically a little better. Uh, sometimes uh, where you hit your tee shot and then from that position, how you then approach the green, uh, you can apply different strategy that will allow you greater success that if you do miss, uh, you're in a position to get up and down more often. And so, like I said, you, you don't have to maybe hit it 20 yards farther to, to increase your um, your scoring and improve your game. Um, if you're trying to shoot better scores, maybe just how you approach every hole and the strategy you employ um, can actually get you some better scores. So that's an important area. I, I would say the tour players that I've watched over the years, this is an area that they're really working on. You know, when they're out there in their practice rounds, what I've watched and witnessed with their caddies, uh, the amount of work that the caddies are doing, um, even when they're not in practice rounds, to ensure that no matter where their player hits the ball, they have the best approach to ensure that they're going to shoot their best scores. This is how they're keeping their scores where they need to make cuts and, and play their best golf. So another really important area. Uh, the fourth area are emotional skills, and that would encompass overall regulation of your emotions you know how do you kind of handle the ups and downs of golf uh, because if you've played any amount of golf you understand that uh, in an 18 hole round or maybe even in one hole you can go through a range of emotions <laughs> you can go from the the lows of a bad tee shot to the most amazing recovery and best uh, 30 foot birdie putt you ever dropped in your life um, and so it kind of has those highs and lows and it's how you handle those and while there's a ton of research out there that shows how experts are different than novices when it comes to handling those emotional highs and lows, the things that I've found so interesting is that how experts truly look at failure, how they, how they take that failure is, is very different from novices. Um, that failure is something that they kind of relish the challenge of overcoming and getting better and learning. Um, I would argue for uh, many of the people out there, if they haven't had the chance to read uh, Dr. Carol Dweck's work on um, growth mindset, while her research largely focuses in education, uh, it's very applicable to sports. Um, and sometimes athletes find themselves in a very fixed mindset, which can make it more difficult for them when it comes to that emotional regulation side. Uh, if you can get into a growth mindset where you're excited about the challenge and those failures are not dictating anything about your ability to be great, it's just giving you an opportunity to learn um, and you're more excited about finding those solutions and learning from them. It's really what the experts learn in that failure that makes them so much better than the rest of us. Because for the most part, when people fail, they just want to run away from it. They're like, well, that was bad. I won't think about it because that's something we don't like. We don't want to stay focused on it. Uh, but it's really in that learning in that space where you can grow and get better, right? So um, <laughs> one of my uh, <laughs> favorite quotes is like Will Smith, and I use it often when I'm in the gym, right? When I'm in the gym working out, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get to failure, right? We're trying to bring your muscle to that point of failure. It's not a bad thing when you're working out, right? That's what we relish. But everything else in life, we're trying to run away from it. <laughs> and uh, of course, Will Smith talks about it, how he's embraced that failure and failing forward and failing often and failing forward is how he's had so much success in his life. So whenever I'm in the gym and I've got a hard workout, I'm trying to embrace that moment in that way. And, and I would recommend that. Um, the other aspect of emotional skills encompasses just general psychological skills. Uh, there are things within the general sports psychology side uh, like motivation and confidence and goal setting, um, imagery training, these aspects, if you're training them, can they can really bolster your emotional skill set. And so that's something where a well-rounded approach in that area, and again, deliberately practicing those areas can really help from the emotional side. So the last area, and this is the area that's my area, and um, I leave it last because for me, uh, it's always been an interest of mine. And when I got into the research, I started to notice that it really was the one area that we didn't have any deliberate practice for. 
Um, so the perceptual skills and what you're doing with your eyes and how your eyes affect your mind to me has really become like the final frontier of sports training, right? Because if we've had decades or maybe even centuries of training in these other areas, um, what have we done and, and what training has been out there to improve the perceptual side? For the most part, it's just been left to chance. Um, but now we actually do have very specific training and we understand the differences between experts and novices and what they're doing with their eyes. And so <clears throat> how experts are using their eyes will help them uh, to be able to not only improve their minds, um, but the perceptual skills are really important to kind of bringing together the other four. Um, you know, all five of these will impact your expertise, but ultimately when it comes time to compete, you know, it's time to pull that trigger and hit that shot. You know, your perceptual skills and what's happening through what you see and how your mind is processing it and what decisions you're making. Uh, ultimately, it's in that moment where those are the greatest driver of your, of your success. And so um, over the years, it's been exciting to, to uh, jump into this area because for a lot of my uh, athletic career, there were some... I guess some things that I thought were true that as I got into the research, I realized, yeah, there, I guess I was wrong when it came to that. You know, some things that I thought were not trainable, they were just, hey, that's a genetic thing that you're either gifted with or you just learned to do and uh, other people just can't learn it. And, you know, that's really not, not the case. So can you kind of go into some of those things that you've learned that are or what you thought weren't trainable, but actually are? Uh, yeah, trainable? absolutely. Yeah. So one of the preeminent uh, experts when it comes to the field of expertise is uh, a professor from uh, Florida State University, um, <clears throat> Dr. Anders Ericsson. I was very sad to hear that he had recently passed in the last year. Uh, he was a big influence in my life uh, when I was in grad school. Uh, while I did do my PhD work at the University of Florida, and you would think that the Gators and the Seminoles do not get along in any space, which is very true for most everything. Um, our labs um, between those universities actually were very close and we worked very well together. So I got to uh, know Dr. Erickson fairly well. And you know, one of the things that he would always bring up that always used to be uh, very contentious conversations were that he believed that there were only two areas that were not trainable. And then everything else could be trained. So the first thing was height. There's no training we can give you to make you taller or shorter. So if you're really wanting to be an expert gymnast and you're 6'5", you know, it's tough to make your body do the things that Simone Bile does with her body. And I've seen her in person training. Um, she is under five feet and she has got a ton of power in that little body. And it makes it easier to get all those turns and twists and flips in. <laughs> um, now, if you want to play in the NBA um, and you're five feet, it's it's not impossible to play in the NBA. There have been some NBA players. Uh, Muggsy Bogues was pretty short, but it's going to be difficult to compete at that level because height is an important thing in basketball. So there's no training to improve height. That's purely genetic. Uh, the second thing that he actually brought up that was purely genetic was uh, eyesight, visual acuity. So uh, really, you, know, you get LASIK eye surgery to improve your, your vision, but really there is no specific training to uh, greatly or significantly improve visual acuity. Um, there's been some research out there that has said there's been improvements in visual acuity, but the improvements are so small that they don't really translate to any significant gains in terms of performance in sport. So those two areas were the two that he lumped into genetic and everything else could be trained. And so it started to make me think, well, how many of the things that I think were just, well, I wasn't born with it and uh, maybe I should be training better. And so as I mentioned those things on the list, right, you've got your physical skills, your technical skills, your tactical skills, emotional skills, and perceptual skills. I can easily think back to when I was competing as an athlete where I was truly deficient in so many and where I could have done so much more to get me even further than I got. And I had gotten pretty close in, in many sports. Um, not even just one, but it was just exciting to kind of see that, yes, maybe I can pass on this knowledge now and get people a lot farther than I did because I didn't know this when I was training and I wish I did. Uh, there's one other area and I'd love to kind of hear what your thoughts are on it because it's in your area, 
But uh, all of my graduate colleagues for graduate school, we were in the College of Health and Human Performance. And we would tell Dr. Erickson that we would include one other area in that uh, purely genetic, untrainable um, list. And it was uh, type 2A muscle fibers. So, you know, you're genetically born with a certain amount of type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers, your slow, slow twitch and uh, fast twitch muscle fibers. But um, really, it's those type 2A muscle fibers that can be trained to act a little bit more like a type 1 or act more like a type 2B. But you just can't train to make everything that's a slow to a fast. And you, if you want to be as fast as Usain Bolt, you just can't give up all your type ones to make them all type twos, right? So we kind of clumped in a, you know, muscle fiber type as being also largely genetic, with only those type two A as being trainable. But yeah, I'd be interested to, uh, to hear what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, from my understanding and knowing um, some of the classes that I took in college. Um, my exercise physiologist professor, he was amazing. Um, but yeah, it's just like, just like you said, like if you want to be faster, run as fast as Usain Bolt, um, you're, you're gifted with so many, uh, type one and type two. And like you said, there's different types of those, um, fibers and you're only gifted so many of them. I'm not too sure now on the research of like transitioning from type one to type two. I'm sure it is somewhat possible I do know that if you if you don't use your type two fibers, this is definitely big for golfers as we get, especially as they get older. A lot of times we just don't work on power and speed speed things because we don't really we don't do that. You don't have to move as quick anymore. Um, but not only is that helpful for golf, but it's helpful for for life and getting up and down stairs and up off the couch, all that stuff. And if you don't use your type two fibers, they end up transitioning to type one fibers, which, um, for those that don't know that are listening are the slower twitch fibers are not really good for, for moving quickly. They're, they're good for endurance activities yeah. like running a marathon or, or walking yeah. long distances. Right. So, and we don't want that for golf or uh, quick, quick, powerful movements. Um, we want more type two fibers. You can improve the type two fibers that you have and get them to, you know, work faster and, and work more efficiently if you train that. Um, but I'm not, entirely too sure. I would definitely agree with you that you're definitely gifted with only uh, uh, so many of those and however many you are, you're, you know, if you have more, hopefully, hopefully you do good things with them. Yeah. And what I would say to the listeners is, you know, while some people would say, no, that's not true. You know, these, some people just have things that they're gifted with. One of the things that I've noticed, especially from working with many of the elite athletes over the years, many of them, I've even asked this question where, when, either in interviews after a round, you know, people, sometimes you'll hear them ask Tiger, they're like, well, Tiger, you know what you did there. I mean, you just, you're just so gifted to be able to do that. And um, when I've asked questions of the best of the best in the world, how they feel about that, some of them actually very much dislike being told that they're just gifted. Uh, wow. That that was just a natural gift from God um, because it almost dismisses the fact that they are working so hard and their level of deliberate practice and the hours they're putting in. I mean, people know like, Tiger's workout schedule has been published for decades, right? Like what time he wakes up, how far he's running and what he's doing every single minute of every single day. This is not just like, well, I'll do it Monday through Friday and I'll hang out on the couch and play Xbox all weekend. I mean, this is a grind. It's ups and downs. It's failure. It's injuries. It's nonstop focused commitment to success, um, unwavering in the face of any failure. Um, and to just simply say that it was like a gift that they didn't even have to work for it can, can almost be somewhat offensive, you know? And so yeah. what I would say to people is my hope is that it gives them more hope that they can start to look into those five areas and say, Hey, what, what can I be doing better? You know, Hey, I thought my workout program was great. You know, maybe I need to call Joe back and reassess, like, where am I at? Did I get almost too flexible in one area and I need to dial this back and become more stable? Or maybe I need to strengthen something else because now I've over, over strengthened one part of my body and the other part, then that's causing an issue. And that constant reassessing of those five skills, that, that's the best way for you to keep getting better and better every single day. Yeah. I think it's, it's so crazy to think about how hard these professional athletes work. And, and I think with the advent of social media and, you know, getting a glimpse into somewhat of more of their lives is, has been 
really eye-opening and helpful for some people to see that. Obviously, it depends on the person and how much they want to share with the world and whatnot, which is totally fine. But when you think about, like, if you watch The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and, and all these things, like, we know Tiger Woods works really hard. We know Michael Jordan worked really hard. I mean, Michael Jordan made up stories that people in his head, like, fabricated stories that people, you know, were telling him that he's not that good. And he that just drove him further, right? And, like, think about how much like Dustin Johnson this past year, everyone, he just seems like this guy that's just like, oh, I go out and I see the ball and I hit it and that's it. But like, we don't see how hard he's working. And I think that's one thing that so many people forget about is that these guys and, and girls that are, are at the top of their game and, and considered the greatest of all time put in a lot of work despite, you know, also the God-given abilities that they were they were, they were blessed with. Yeah, Dustin Johnson is one of my top guys, and I've talked about him before. You know, the deliberate practice he's put in over the last few years to specifically focus in on his short game and his wedges. Um, you know, his power has been always a strength, and he's overpowered courses for a long time. And when you think of how he plays the golf game, he sees parts of the golf course I never get to see, right? Because what he's hitting for his second shot on par fours and par fives, that's not where I'm at. <laughs> but he started to very quickly understand, well, where am I hitting the ball? What am I getting the most of? What do I have to start getting better at? And he started to really target his short game and his wedges. And that next year, you know, he was winning and getting number one rankings. And people would ask him, you know, in the offseason, last year you said you were working on your wedges and your short game. It seemed to really pay off. What are you working on this year? He goes, wedges and short game. I'm like, trying to keep getting that better and better and better. And yeah, I mean, this year, a Masters champion now and uh, the FedEx Cup champion. Uh, truly a great example of how deliberate practice can help you get to those higher levels. The interesting thing is now for me, we live in a world where there's social media and we can get such an inside glimpse, like you said, into these athletes. Um, many people don't you know, know or even get to see what that was like for the old time golfers. You know, but I always heard those stories where the guys like Arnold Palmer, you know, they would say, you know, what all Arnold Palmer was doing when he was not playing golf, like he was back home on the farm. Like he was lifting things and dig, he was doing work that was on the farm. And you always hear stories about all those golfers had huge hand strength and forearms, you know, their arms are so strong. Um, and I actually had the opportunity. I was at, um, uh, living in Orlando. Uh, I met with one of my PGA golfers for Bay Hill to do some work um, on those days uh, before the tournament started. And when we got out of the car, um, Mr. Palmer walked up with all of his friends to say hi to my client. And I was just in awe, you know, he's, he's one of my favorites. And so, uh, and my client introduced me to him and I got to shake his hand. And to this day, I'll just never forget it. I mean, to the day I die, I won't forget it. First of all, my hand felt like a tiny child's hand, in, an adult hand, and his hand strength, even at that age, was so strong. And I thought to myself, you know, again, it's that kind of hard work that there was no social media or anything to know that he was doing it, but that's a part of what was making those you know players so great, so they could translate it into their golf game. You know, yeah. Um, speaking of deliberate practice and practicing, I feel like a lot of times, a lot of people bring up or have questions about practicing. And I've, I find that a lot of times amateur golfers practice wrong. That may even include myself. Um, but I, I feel like I've definitely gotten better at that. Um, instead of just like aimlessly hitting things or not working on certain things. Right. But you see so many golfers just drilling, you know, same club after same club. And, you know, it could be a technical thing that they're working on with that specific club, or different things, but I feel like there's so many different ways to practice and so many people might be confused, but what, in your experience, what, is, what are some of the best ways to practice? And maybe you can go a little bit better into that. Maybe, maybe specifically with what your guys do and what, what you do with them. Yeah. So this is a great question and it's, it's a really deliberate practice is a very in-depth topic. Um, I don't know if our podcast today is long enough to discuss it all. You can um, just, it's just skim part it. of the training program that I have to discuss it because uh, when I was in grad school, I actually had an entire semester dedicated to a course just on deliberate practice because it was um, that in depth. It actually was taught by um, a, a faculty member who had Dr. Erickson at Florida State as his advisor. So 
it was one of those things where there are many aspects of deliberate practice that need to be done correctly. Uh, for me, what it comes down to is, and, and Dr. Erickson has that 10,000 hour rule where it's like, well, if you do 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, you'll become an expert. And I guess what I would just tell people up front is they need to start to change their mindset away from, I just need to get a ton of hours. Like I need to just be putting in a ton of hours because if I get 10,000 hours, then I'll be an expert. And that's kind of a misunderstanding of what the theory is all about. If I would give people any advice on what to start thinking about um, that we can fit into this podcast, it would be that they need to start to focus more on the quality of the time while they're out there. So what was your intent while you went out? Uh, what area were you really trying to focus in on? You could go out and get in only 30 minutes of practice, but if it's a quality amount of time that's directed towards something specific, where you've got the ability to provide yourself accurate feedback so you can know how to tweak it, that is worth more than you being out there, you know, hitting 100 balls for two hours and feeling like, man, I got two hours of practice in. But, you know, it, it really becomes kind of a, a shift because so many people think, I just need to be out there for getting a ton of experience. And it's not just simply getting a ton of experience. And so, um, for those of us who are amateurs and have very busy lives and kids and you know everything that's going on in the world, you know you don't have to get out there to get you know two or three hours every single day, uh, especially if you were to maybe cut that in half. But it's very focused and very deliberate on something. Uh, that would be my my recommendation, and to just really try to dial some of the things in. Um, and and again, having someone that can really help you in that process. Uh, online, there's tons of people that are providing great information. Um, if you have a swing coach at your club uh, or someone that is a swing coach that you trust, you know, leveraging those people to really be able to ensure that your time is very deliberate is, is going to be key. So, I think that's great. I mean, quality over quantity mm -hmm. all the time, basically, for the most part. Sure. Just a quick aside for anyone listening, just going off of expertise and becoming a master in something a good book would be mastery by robert green if, if you've never read it i would i would read that i think it's i think it's great um but let's get a little bit more into your expertise which is the eyes and perception right so i'll just ask you this question why are the eyes so important for performance <laughs> so yeah there are three things that i love to discuss when it comes to why your eyes are so important um and i'll There'll be some science. I'll try to keep it brief and not get too technical, but I think it's important for people to understand how much your eyes impact your mind. So first off, if you're thinking of everything your mind does, attention is the building blocks. It's the start of all of it when it comes to everything your mind does. So it is the most important thing. It's the bedrock. Um, attention actually is the bedrock and leads to working memory. And then working memory would be the building blocks of everything else your mind does. So, you know, reasoning, language, long-term memory, executive function, all those other aspects of cognition uh, are then built off of your working memory. So if we go back to the beginning and think, okay, well, if attention is the building blocks of everything that my mind is doing, well, what is the, what is the one thing that has the greatest impact on attention? Well, it's, it's your eyes. It's what information is coming through that visual system that's driving that process first. And, uh, and, and in life, in most things, being able to have lost vision and not be able to see would be very difficult to perform many tasks um, because of how big of a role it plays. We do have blind golfers that go out and shoot great scores, uh, but they are out there with people to make sure that they find their ball and align them for the next shot and then hit the ball. Um, I could not blindfold you, get you to the first tee and let you go because <laughs> after that first tee shot, you may not even find the ball <laughs> uh, wandering around out there with blindfold on. So, you know, the eyes really are driving much of that attentional process. And because that's the start of all of it, it really is that impactful and important. Uh, the second thing that's so important is that uh, information that travels through your eyes reaches every region of your brain. And so out of your five senses, not all of your senses will the information activate your entire brain. So if you hear something, uh, that information goes to a very specific region of the brain, uh, but it doesn't access all regions of the brain. 
Um, so when it comes to vision, the way it works is information that comes through the visual system will actually travel to the back of your brain, to the occipital lobe. This is where the visual cortex is located. Uh, your brain is then taking that basic digital image of light and turning it into a picture. Um, from there, that information is sent along the sides and top. These are the ventral and dorsal streams, uh, and it's sent in unison. So simultaneously, that information is going to the front of your brain, to the um, uh, frontal cortex. And in the frontal cortex, this is where kind of planning and decision-making is going on, on on what you should do. From there, that information is sent to the top of your brain where the motor cortex and premotor cortex is located for that information to go down your spinal cord to your body for you to, to perform an action. So when you think of all of the pathways that that information travels, I can't imagine something being more important to train than your eyes because what your eyes are taking in is either going to ramp up cognitive processing and can overload that system or it can very much help that system to work very efficiently. And the more efficient that system can work, guess what can work even more efficiently than your brain? It's your body. Your body has been trained for hours. You're putting in all that hard work to develop uh, that, those motor patterns so your muscles can kind of almost repeat automatically those skills. And when your brain is more efficient in that processing, then your body isn't overloaded with a different, uh, additional information and your body can repeat that uh, motor pattern more efficiently. And so this leads to great success physically when your mind is working more effective uh, in that manner. So yes, the eyes are important in that way. And then lastly, uh, your eyes are responsible for nearly 90% of all cognitive processing. So if nearly 90% is responsible from the eyes, then again, that for me puts them right up front for being one of the most important things to train. So like I told you, there were those five areas to, to train. Uh, even if we took the simple math with perceptual being the fifth, if you're not training that area, you've left 20% of your expertise, I mean, 20% of your potential just left on the table, left to chance. Um, and to think now, understanding how much that's impacting your mind and how that process then impacts your performance you can see that it could even be more than 20%. I would argue that it could be anywhere between 20 to 40% of your expertise could be impacted perceptually uh, from that system. So this is one of those things where, uh, as I've seen it, and I've seen it on all ability levels, where the tour player where they've missed cuts and struggled, uh, you know, like the first tour player I ever worked with on the PGA Tour had missed two cuts in a row. He was playing some of the worst golf he had ever played all year, and he trained with me on one day, and I told him, I said, this is not the way to do the program. <laughs> the program is designed for you know, a few days. Um, he literally only had one, one day before he was traveling, <clears throat> and uh, again, because he's a tour player and the, the ability to handle that much information at once, I think was a, you know, elite athletes can maybe handle that, but it was impressive to see how dedicated he was for a full day to change his perceptual skills and how he used them in his golf game. Well, literally that was on a Thursday. He flew out and uh, won the tournament the next week. Uh, and his stats were up 15% from his year averages, which for a tour player, that's just ridiculous. I have 15% in my golf game. You know, the two of us probably have 15% yeah. of improvement in our golf game. <laughs> But tour players really don't have that kind of gain. Um, and I, I laugh because I think of like in other sports, like and we talked about, I guess, Usain Bolt is a great example. What is his um, 100 meter record? He's the fastest. I think it was 9.58, somewhere around there. Something so like that. It, it is a 9.58 as his fastest 100 meter. If he was 15% faster, and I just do the quick math, that's almost like a second and a half faster. I mean, you're like at 8.1 seconds. There's no training he's getting in a day and now running an 8.1 in 100 meter, right? I mean, if, no. if he trained a day and he went from 9.58 to 9.48, he would probably be ec ecstatic, right? Yep. So, of course, when tour players get those gains, they love it. But this is what's been exciting for me, you know, being able to provide this training to even amateur golfers who are struggling to break 100. Uh, you know, when you're training the eyes to do the right things, 
your mind has no choice but to follow those new signals. So the results can come really fast. Um, it's not as if you need to train with it for a while and get used to it and your mind has to kind of develop some new neural pathways and you know that has to kind of get comfortable over time and then you work it into your game and competition. I mean, there is certainly a balance of learning these skills and then getting them from the practice area to competition. However, you know, I've literally seen within the first 30 minutes to an hour of working with someone, their eyes are now doing what expert level athletes do with their eyes and they can't miss a putt. And they keep looking at me like, what did you do? Like, is this some kind of like magic or something? And of course I lived in Orlando and I'm like, no, I don't have any pixie dust. That's not my deal. You know, I can't, can't make that kind of magic happen. But he really, it's nice because for me, I've always been an athlete and it was kind of one of those things for me where in doing this research, I always wanted to try to develop something, A, that was very skill-based, you know, it wasn't just um, simply thoughts or, or you know, um, other training that required more time, but it was a very skill-based training that would equate to improvements mentally and improvements physically and help people win more. Um, as an athlete, we have very limited amount of time to practice. What we're practicing, we want it to pay off. And like you said, people want to do something that gets them results fast. <laughs> Some people don't like the, the long, hard road to finally get to the results. And so one of the things that's been nice is to see that in, in so many golfers. Um, and you got to put in the time. You know, Obviously, you got to put in the deliberate practice. Uh, but with those important areas of expertise with the eyes and kind of knowing those things, it really helps them to kind of look at things differently and then they start really picking up on where things have gone wrong and they were trying to fix maybe even the wrong thing. So yeah, that's been a exciting process for me. That's awesome. I think it's crazy to think that the eyes, you know, contribute 90% of your cognitive function. Right. And if, like you said, perception is 20% of expertise and you may argue, like you said, maybe 20 to 40%, uh, you can imagine, if you're not training that you're, you're leaving so much on the table. So what, what are, what, what do you find are the differences between say like an elite person versus an amateur and what they're doing with their, their eyes and their perception? Yeah. So within my own research and research that's been done by uh, researchers in perception and cognition over the years, the science has been pretty firm when it comes to these areas. And so, uh, you know, what experts do that are better than novices with their eyes, the first one would be is that they are really good at quickly recognizing sport specific patterns. So, you know, especially when you're playing in a dynamic sport, um, it can be related in sports like golf, but very much in dynamic sports. Think of things like football and basketball I and mean, tennis things are changing very quickly and they're able to understand the patterns to be able to stay at the pace of the game. And so what I like to refer to is football because you'll hear it. Uh, and I've heard it when I've worked with uh, football players, the game, when it goes from high school to college is faster. And everybody that's in college that I've worked with that goes on to the pros say the game's even faster. So the key game keeps getting faster. And so my argument to them is, well, you know, because I've worked with guys as they're prepping for the combine, is it, is it important to run a really fast 40 for the combine and get drafted? Sure, that's a, that's a great thing. But what will get you drafted very quickly is where that speed in your 40 translates to being really fast in a game. And how you get faster in the game, where you look faster than your 40 time, is where your eyes are seeing what's happening and your brain processes the information so much faster and you're making the decisions more accurately. You seem to always be in the right spot at the right time so fast. And again, maybe your 40 time isn't actually faster, but your brain helped you to get you there faster. And that becomes a huge plus in, in competition. So that's one area that, the, that they're different. The other area is that uh, experts see balls and other objects in their visual field uh, so much faster. So in sports like baseball and football, when you're having to hit a ball, tennis, hitting a ball or catching a ball, uh, there are things that they do perceptually with their eyes, with very specific um, eye skills that allow them to see them faster and then predict where those balls will end. So think of baseball. When a pitcher is throwing a pitch, 
A baseball player literally has only the amount of time when that ball leaves the hand until it crosses the plate with upwards of 100 mile per hour flat fastballs or maybe even worse, like a 92 mile per hour slider. That might even be harder to hit. Be able to not only see the pitch, determine what type of pitch and where that pitch will eventually be when it's over the plate for them to get the bat on the ball. And so there's very specific training that um, I provide to be able to increase that. And I would say even for a sport like golf where you're like, well, you know, once I've hit it, then I'm watching it. <laughs> and uh, maybe it is important to be able to see it really well if you're hitting it bad so you can find it. <laughs> but hopefully that's not the case. It's easy to find them when they're in the middle of the fairway, right, and on the green. Um, however, there are very specific things with that part of the training that can help you in picking up other little nuances, especially when you're putting and things like that, that experts are just so much better at seeing. And when they see see them more uh, more quickly they're able then to make better uh, decisions again it's less processing less kind of analyzing and that can help you play better golf i mean think about it the more you're thinking the more you're analyzing the worse you're going to play that in the game right so yeah. trying to avoid that um, that kind of leads into the next one the next one is uh, experts really are good at avoiding excess eye movement and they really focus in on the most relevant cue zones um, to get that accurate information on what's going on in the environment. And so if you are really moving your eyes a lot, and uh, that, that skill is called a saccade, so that means for the eyes to jump. If the eye is jumping and saccading to many different points, every time it moves, it sends information to your brain to process. And as I had just mentioned, the more movement, the more processing, the more processing, the more thinking, and the worse you're going to start playing this game, right? We're all trying to get that to that level of automaticity where we've experienced it maybe even at some level where it just things seem to just fall into place. You finish your round uh, and you feel like, wow, I, I don't even know what happened and I shot the best round of my life. I mean, I wasn't even thinking out there. How is it so easy? How do I find that again? And that was one of the most exciting comments I ever got from one of my PGA Tour players. He had one on tour very early in his career but then had gone through a stretch of about eight years where he was going back to Q school to get his card mm -hmm. or keeping his card on the last event of the year, every year for almost eight years straight. Um, and he talked about how when it was uh, the last event used to be at Disney World, uh, at the Disney courses, he actually made a putt to keep his card. And he said, I actually could have laid down on that 18th green at Disney and just like fallen asleep. I was just so white mentally, so, so relieved to have kept my card. And he said, you know, it's frustrating. It's tough to live that life on tour. I mean, some golfers don't understand how hard it is to like keep a card year in and year out. So he said to me, you know, as we were going through the training, as soon as he started to apply those skills, it was the first thing he said to me. He goes, I can't believe it. What I felt when I won, that feeling of it just being like automatic and so easy, like finding that zone, he goes, that's the feeling I get when I do the skill right with the eyes now. It's like you literally have taught me how to find that feeling now and reproduce it when I want it, right? And so, um, yeah, he did go on to win twice and get that feeling again and the wins help. Uh, but it is one of those things where you really have to control that excess eye movement to avoid that heightened cognitive processing. And so in golf, that's that's huge. Um, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite uh, examples of this was watching Bryson DeChambeau putt when he was playing in a round with uh, Justin Thomas. You know, he had like a 70-yard pitch shot that he had walked all the way up to the green to look at the landing spot. And then he walked all the way back and then took time to figure out what to hit. And then he just hit his pitch shot. And then he got up. He had about like an eight-footer to, to make par. And he looked at that putt from every angle. You know, he had his book out, analyzing everything and talking to his caddy. Justin Thomas is just like scratching his head, man. He's halfway down to the next tee box. He's like, come on, man, just hit your putt. We got to get going, you know? And, um, you know, I watched uh, Bryson DeChambeau hit his putt and that eight footer didn't even touch the cup. I mean, it didn't even come close. And so, and I think about this, right? Sometimes we think as golfers, well, if I look at it from more angles, like if I look at it from the high side and the low side and from behind the cup to the ball and from the ball to the hole, you know, I, I get more information. I'm going to be better with more information. Uh, maybe more information isn't better. Like finding the balance in that, right? Maybe I only need to look at it from the low side and from behind the ball to the hole. You know, maybe I'm better off from hole to ball. You know, I've had some tour players like, I see it perfect from hole to ball. 
okay, we'll look at it from behind the hole to the ball and then just come around and get it lined up and go, right? You don't need to take in more information. It's only going to bring in doubt and uh, that's not going to help you make a good stroke when it's time to hit that putt. So yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I will say DeChambeau is putting in a lot of work to improve that short game, man. He's hitting a long way. Yes. But I'll tell you, he's making a lot of putts. You can't discount how good no. his short game is. Those, those putts are what's making, uh, making him money and getting him wins. So yeah, I think that's the, the lost thing of what's was really helping him. Uh, I think there was a stat he made like 92% of putts within like eight or 10 feet or something like that. That's yeah. It's like, I mean, that's, that's big. That's real big. Oh. And just even thinking about the cognitive thing, this made me just think about, um, I like to look at just like peak performance stuff and just thinking in general for high performing, just life essentially is one thing I've thought about is, <clears throat> or related to what you were just saying is, mental fatigue, right? A lot of people easily get mental fatigue and that drains them throughout the day from having to make so many decisions. And one thing I always tell people to do is to, you know, get into a morning routine and even a nighttime routine where you, you know, it may take some time out of your evening, but prep your lunch, get the coffee ready. So all you have to do is hit a, hit a button or, you know, it has an alarm. So it goes off and starts making coffee in the morning immediately. And just doing all those things, makes you have to think about less things, which is crazy to think about because they're so small, but they add up throughout the day and can really throw a wrench in, into your decision-making and focus later in the day when you really got to make decisions, you know, when you're at work or doing other things that are, are more important than, you know, pouring the coffee and, and making your lunch. Yeah. I've seen much of that research where they say, you really have to put some of the biggest decisions for your work and your business in the front half of your day. Cause after a certain point, you're going to be worse off. Um, and isn't that they, why they said, I guess, uh, Steve Jobs used to just wear the same clothes every day and keep it simple because he didn't want to waste any of that on uh, picking out an outfit. So uh, there's something maybe to be said about that, right? <laughs> yep. Well, um, let's, real simple, if you can give maybe one tip that people can work on to maybe improve their perception, eye tracking, and then you can go in. I know that you have uh, told me this and you can tell a little bit of however much you want, but you're going to be releasing a new, a new program in the next coming weeks. If you want to go into that and what that entails, I would I would love for you to share share the details of that. Yeah, absolutely. So the the first thing I would tell golfers that they need to work on is just simply becoming more aware of what their eyes are doing when they're playing. Um, as you know, the excessive eye movements are a real issue. And a lot of times we're not even aware of those eye movement patterns. And the reason why is, and we take putting as an example, when you walk up to the green and mark your ball and then start to go through the process of assessing the read of your putt, you're really taking in a lot of information. You know, you're looking at the green and the slope and maybe the grain. You're also taking in, okay, factors of distance and, um, you know, what you've done with other putts on previous greens. And so you're looking at all this information. And if you've had any kind of problems with your stroke, you may be really focused on technique while you're kind of getting prepared to hit your putt. And even though we've been told by so many people and there's been a ton of sports psych out there about where your mind needs to be and you got to clear your mind of things, you know, sometimes we'll be so focused about a technique we're trying to, um, to feel during the action of the stroke that we're not even aware of what our eyes are doing during that moment because our mind is in a place focused on something else. And so when you start to just make it a conscious effort to just start to realize, okay, let me focus a little bit more about what my eyes do while I'm going through my putting routine. You may be actually shocked to start realizing, oh my gosh, my eyes are doing a lot more things than I even knew that they were doing. And there's a reason why this is so important. Okay, eye movement patterns, and the science has shown this, that those eye movement patterns are not only tied to conscious memories of the past. So the things that you remember that are in your conscious part of your mind, but where things can get really difficult is that those eye movement patterns actually will access the subconscious memories from the past. And this is where it can get really dicey, especially in golf. If you're not learning how to control your eye movement patterns at the right time, if those are recalling memories from the past, from your subconscious, then that information is information you're not really even aware of at that moment, but that information is being sent to your muscles and your muscles can pick up on that and say, okay, 
I can repeat that. So if you're on a hole that has, you know, maybe water down the right side, and yes, you've hit great tee shots all day, and maybe you're not worried about hitting a slice into the water, you haven't thought about hitting a slice in the water, your thoughts were positive, um, maybe you felt confident over the ball, you didn't look at the water and go, oh man, there's water down that right side, don't hit a slice. I mean, those weren't your thoughts. You may simply step up and still hit a slice into the water. And that's where as, as golfers, I know personally for me, it can be very frustrating. Because you're sitting there thinking, man, I hit the ball great. I haven't, hit, I haven't missed the tee shot all day. Why now on this hole do I miss that tee shot? And I wasn't even really thinking about that or worrying about that. Because if you did, you could honestly say to yourself, well, as soon as I got to this hole, I went, ah, this is my nemesis hole. I hate hole you know, 12 on my course because there's water down the right side and I always hit a slice. Okay, well, if those are your thoughts in those moments, you know you have those thoughts and you can actually work on them. But when you don't know they're there, I mean, how can you fix those things? And so this is where the eyes, again, are more powerful. Your eyes are going to override even some of those positive thoughts. Even if you have a perfect picture in your mind on the tee shot you're trying to hit with visualization, if you have the wrong eye movement patterns, that's going to take over and your body could pick up on those signals and that bad shot of a slice into the, into the water uh, down the right-hand side can come out at the wrong time. And so besides the fact that it's going to ramp up a ton of cognitive processing, that second part is really something that many don't understand. And once you, you do start to get just a general understanding of what are my eyes doing while I'm playing, you will start to learn that, man, I'm doing a ton of extra looking and movement that maybe is not necessary. And so on a simple level, you can even just start to try to reduce some of that and really be conscious at directing your eyes to really um, key important areas that are relevant for you to play great golf. I would say water down the right side is not a great area or relevant area to play great golf, right? So uh, using those uh, can help. Um, and you bring up something that I've been pretty passionate about now over the last year. Uh, I guess with COVID, it's been some good and some bad. Uh, the good that has come out of it, I guess, for me is that it's given me more time um, where I do have a long commute to SOCOM to where I work. And not having all that drive has provided me a lot more time to start thinking about my passion with the development and maintenance of expertise and how I can get that to more people. Um, because I do think of what opportunities I missed out on and it bugs me and it, and it feels great to be able to have that drive to get it to other people and help them where they can tap more potential. And so in the last year, I've really been able to work to develop an online training program where people can access all of the perceptual cognitive training I developed that are the key basics that they can do even without me um, and be able to learn what their eyes are doing. Um, obviously, they will own an eye tracker like I have, which is technology that will actually track the pupil and cornea of your eye and actually show you on a computer what your eyes are doing while you're playing golf. Um, you won't have that, but the system online will provide you with all the tools that you already have. You, you don't even have to buy something new to be able to start learning what your eyes are doing and then develop the correct skills to correct a lot of this. So we're starting off with putting. Uh, the putting online platform will launch uh, the first week of February, so we're really excited about that. And then after the putting program is launched, I'll be developing the full swing program, uh, which includes tee shots and approach shots, as well as the short game program, which would be pitching, chipping, and bunker play. Um, while the theories and everything that I'd be teaching are the same, how your eyes need to be trained for those different areas of your golf game have to be very specific. And so uh, I'll be rolling out those other programs, obviously, as quickly as I can uh, to try to get more of that information out to try to keep helping people. And so, yeah, I'm pretty excited to be able to get there. And, you know, again, um, it, it's just been a passion for a long year, uh, a long time. And this year has been a great year to be able to grab hold of that extra time and use it in a good way. And hopefully we can start, you know, raising people's level of expertise and getting them playing better golf. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited for it to, to launch and to see how many people you end up helping, which is amazing. Um, I could definitely put down, uh, in the show notes, any links that you have to any of those products eventually. Um, but yeah, you could just send them to me and I'll make sure that they're in there. So people have access to that. Um, but we'll we'll end the show here. Um, I just always end with fun three questions here, Ryan. So okay. 
Um, first one is what is the best golf course you've ever played? Best golf course I've ever played. Um, well, the best golf course I've ever been on was Augusta because I was I had to go for work, but I didn't get to play it. So I guess I can't say Augusta. So the two, I guess there are two that come to mind immediately, and they're really my favorites. The best on the list from the last time I checked, maybe the Golf Digest list of best golf courses, I guess it would have to be the Ocean Course at Kiowa. I used to work there when I had graduated from college, and uh, because I worked there, I could play the Ocean Course for the cost of the golf cart. It was like $5. So I took advantage of that often, and um, – very good golf course. If you haven't been out to Kiowa, definitely play the Ocean Course. It's a beautiful course. Um, the other one would be Torrey Pines. I played both courses at Torrey Pines, and it's just gorgeous right there by the cliffs and the water, the Pacific. It's it's really a favorite of mine as well. So I would say uh, Ocean Course and Torrey Pines are my two that I've played that I like the best. Nice. Um, second question is, you have a risky approach shot into mm. the green. Are you going for it, or are you laying up? Okay, well, definitely going for it, but I'm going to give you another tip. So for your listeners, here's another good tip, okay? So this is what I would do. First of all, I would go for the risky shot, but I would start to employ some expert-level perceptual skills that I know to be able to see where in that risky shot I would get the most room for success. So there's probably somewhere that there's some conservative area, even though it's a risky shot, where would be the most conservative high percentage for success for that risky shot? And then by using those perceptual skills, I would play extremely aggressive to that conservative location. And this does a lot of things for your mind to allow you to free yourself up to stay aggressive, knowing that you're playing to that location and can get you more success on those risky shots. So I say go for it. <laughs> nice. Love it. And then uh, last question is, you're going to go out for a round. Who is in your dream foursome? Oh, dream foursome. If it's a dream, if it's a dream, uh, um, uh, you know, foursome, can I make it a fivesome? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go for it. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't. Well, so I, I, of course, would want to put Tiger in there. But beyond Tiger, really, like I said earlier in the show, Arnold Palmer, I really have enjoyed watching Arnold Palmer and getting to meet him and know him and living there in Orlando. Uh, he's really been uh, one of my favorite golfers. And uh, and I know Tiger and Arnold are close. So if it's a fivesome, then they, they get along so well. It would just be great to see their interaction together um, and be able to play with them. Um, but then the other two that I would want would be my best friend, Ty. I played a ton of golf with him and football and baseball and sports over the years. And uh, I always have the most fun on the golf course with, with my buddy, Ty. And uh, then the last would definitely be my dad. Um, nice. To be able to uh, to be able to get one more round of golf in with him would be would be the best gift of all. Awesome. So, yeah, that would be my dream fivesome, if that's okay. That's okay, <laughs> yeah. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this and to really, I think, share so much knowledge. And then I'm like I said, looking forward to your program, and I hope I hope you have wild success because I feel like this would be super huge for so many people. And to my knowledge, I don't know much else that's out there that's doing this um, specifically to help improve golfers. Um, but yeah, if, if there's any way that people can get in contact with you or have questions or definitely want to work with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can find me online on my website, which is just my name, ryancaserta.com. And then uh, they can also find me on uh, Twitter um, and uh, Instagram as well. So uh, yeah, I'll definitely give you those links and you can add them. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to keep helping expand the game and uh, help raising the level of expertise. Hopefully we'll start to shatter some record books with some additional training. <laughs> yes. Ryan, thank you so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. What a great interview with Ryan Caserta. I hope everyone enjoyed that interview as much as I did, even though some of that information that we went over was the second time that I had heard it. I learned even more and I cannot wait to apply it to my practice and what I'm doing with clients as well as myself. Please give Dr. Ryan a follow on Instagram and Twitter and also please check out his website. All of that will be linked below in the show notes without a doubt. Also, please, if you're really interested in working with Dr. Ryan, please check out his new course that we had mentioned at the end of the show that he is releasing pretty much within the next week. Uh, so go ahead and check that out. 
I think it's going to be a great steal and a great value for anyone that is looking forward to really untapping their potential and improving their golf game. Also, if you have any questions about anything that myself and Ryan talked about today, please feel free to reach out to either of us, especially Ryan. He's the nicest person in the world. He'd be more than happy to answer you and make sure that your question gets answered. If you haven't done so already, I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review this show on whichever platform that you're listening. And please be honest. I mean, if we, I would love a five-star, but if you think it's a one-star, then so be it. Uh, but... With that, we will officially wrap up the show. Thank you so much, as always, taking the time out of your day, as I know that you could be doing anything else. But again, you decided to listen to me uh, talk with someone else, and I really appreciate that. Uh, but till next time, keep working hard, keep striving for excellence in everything that you do, because when you feel great, you golf great.